Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. We find out how we can stop drones and how drones can help solve problems across the world. From the oceans and the eelgrass all the way to the Great Barrier Reef, we find out a ways drones are helping environmentalists and biologists protect environments and look after endangered species. Plus, we find out how you can counter drones and why drones are so problematic for airports. All this week and more on the good and bad side of drones. Thousands of people across the world will be unwrapping and unboxing a variety of special battery-powered autonomous flying vehicles, or drones as we like to call them. And these have been getting a bit of a bad rap, especially when you consider that some have been used to close down airports in the United Kingdom, causing disruption for thousands upon thousands of travellers, ruining their holiday season and highlighting the weaknesses of drone countermeasures as they exist so far in the world. So this week we're going to focus on two things. The first is how we stop drones in flight when they're in some way we don't want them to be. And on the other side, we're going to look at Well, what can drones do for good rather than for evil? And look at a couple of stories of drones being used in innovative ways to help tackle real-world problems. For 36 hours, all operations at Gatwick Airport was interrupted, cancelling hundreds or thousands of flights in and out of that airport and causing travel holiday chaos. And you might ask yourself just exactly how a small little drone can cause a whole bunch of problems for a big airport full of even bigger planes. And the reality is that airports are very delicate places of operations. The smallest thing on landing or approach or takeoff can cause tremendous damage to a plane that will make their landing incredibly difficult and dangerous for the passengers on board or cause damage that can cause serious problems when in the air thousands of miles out to sea, for example. So drone strike, just like bird strike, could be incredibly damaging to an airplane. Especially when you consider drones, unlike birds, can carry lithium-ion batteries, which alone, when in an explosion, can be incredibly damaging. Now this isn't the first time a new innovative technology becoming cost-effective and easily commercially available has caused havoc for airports and airport security. Now, When laser pointers first became readily and cheaply available in high powers, airports had to re-change the way they managed security on runways to prevent people shining laser pointers into the eyes of cockpits or pilots as they tried to land. And this became an incredibly serious problem, and still is from time to time, as people try and disrupt takeoff and landing. But unlike that problem, drones have another level of complexity in that you can throw a drone into the air and walk away effectively and not be seen. And you can control it remotely from miles, kilometres away as it goes about and does its thing. That makes it very, very difficult to spot the perpetrator. And it's not the first time drones have been used to deliver a particularly dangerous message. In 2015, a drone carrying a tiny amount of radioactive sand was flown onto the roof of the Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe at the time's office. And this was done as an act of protest against the country's nuclear energy policy. This was around the time of Fukushima. But but it was a massive wake-up call for world leaders, realising that even that far ago, drones would become a serious threat. Of course, the United States government and the Secret Service and all that have to manage the same thing, with often drone protests trying to be aimed at Donald Trump, or any significant leader. And Japan, shortly after that, of course, incident, 
unveiled drone catch catching nets where basically you get a pretty large quadricopter equipped with a very very large net about three meter large net to fly at the drone and that's one example of what experts call a kinetic method a way of interacting with the drone to bring it down of course you could shoot it out of the sky, which works great in military theatres, but not so great in a densely populated area. Shooting out of the sky also poses the risk that if you don't know what's on board, it could cause an even bigger explosion, or put debris everywhere. So what can you do? Well, there's a lot of different methods. One very common technique used by a lot of different people is called geofencing. And since many drones actually contain GPS for navigation, if you have what they call a geofence around a certain location, you can block the GPS signal in that area and prevent the drone from flying, or detect if you are in an unrestricted area, for example, and prevent the drone from navigating at all or getting out of there. And major drone manufacturers, including DJI, the largest drone manufacturer out of China, have implemented such security features, and that's immensely helpful, but if you're determined, you can get around that pretty simply by customising the firmware and bypassing that technology. So then, people like to deploy other techniques, including frequency jamming. Now, drones are, are controlled remotely via a number of different frequencies. But the challenge there is later newer drones actually frequency hop, much in the same way that your phone's Wi-Fi does as well. It tries to find a frequency that's free and uses that, which makes jamming very difficult. You basically have to play a never-ending cat-and-mouse game to try and block the available frequencies. Or you go nuclear and block all frequencies, which causes havoc for everybody else. But even if you manage to bring down the drone, shooting it, catching it in air or blocking all its frequencies, that doesn't do anything to stop the person actually controlling the drone, and trying to trace it back to them is incredibly difficult. Which is why it took so long in the UK for them to actually track down these people controlling the drone. And this is really gets to the large point here. Drones are an amazing technology because they enable remote control, and they're incredibly difficult to track down the operators, because after all, they could get a package delivered to a location and as long and insist on the package that it be opened and then fly the drone two kilometers away. And they could do this all from sitting in the same city, in a different state, in a different country. So the asymmetric nature of this makes it very, very difficult to counter and shows just how careful we have to be around pieces of critical infrastructure. An airport disruption is one thing, but you could do the same thing by maybe taking a drone to a large data center, or a telecommunications hub that's controlling all the internet traffic for a certain region, or perhaps a large sporting event, or even large infrastructure like roads, rail, and other pieces of critical infrastructure like dams. So this is a serious issue for world police forces and governments to try and counter, and it can only be solved by cooperation between technology companies, anti-drone countermeasure providers, of which there are thousands, and also the military, and sharing and making those things accessible. It's not a nature of a specific piece of technology. It's not the fault of drones per se. So humans will always find a way to outsmart law enforcement, and this is a problem from the dawn of time. If you put a rule in place, people will come up with a way to block it. But it's the purpose of governments, police enforcement, and, and developers to actually find ways to counter those who are seeking to break the law and endanger others. It's not per se drone's fault, but a challenge of human nature that we need to learn to deal with. The solution may be more technology and also perhaps more regulation.
may have heard recent reports of mass coral bleaching events occurring on the Great Barrier Reef in North Queensland. And not just the Great Barrier Reef, but reefs across the world are under stress from climate change. As ocean levels warm and more pollution and damage happens in reef areas, reefs find it harder and harder to survive. And it may look like a large static object, but a reef is a collection of living things. A mass piece of collective organisms all pulling together is exactly what a coral reef is made of. So how can you help boost and revitalize these coral reefs, these giant forests of the ocean? Well, it requires sometimes innovative approaches, such as the one being led by Professor Pete Harrison from Southern Cross University, working together with a large group of over 55 researchers from Southern Cross University, University of Technology in Sydney, and James Cook University out of Cairns, Townsville area. And the 55 people involved in this project are basically trying to develop a way to reseed the reef, or rather, undertake effectively a transplant. Bring back new, newly spawned and lab-grown pieces of coral and place them back on the reef to help regrow it and reboost its population. It's an idea called reef restoration that could apply not just in reefs here, but in the more than 70% of the world reefs that are already highly degraded. And there's about 10 to 20 of those facing imminent pressure from glowing human population. So coming up with ways to revitalize reefs that are damaged by human population is a great idea. So how do drones fit into the picture here? Well, first we need to explain just how corals can repopulate and reform. In Queensland, one of the key spawning seasons occurs between October and December. And during this massive coral spawning season, all the coral release from their gut cavity eggs and sperm. And these float and mix in the water. They float towards the surface, algae is involved, and they help fertilize, start to chew down and form and grow these coral larvae. And they all just coagulate and then settle down onto the ocean floor expanding and growing and repopulating the colony of the coral. But this is a difficult time for the coral, because if there's any disruptions during that period, well, then you ruin the breeding cycle of the coral itself. So to assist, this team of researchers collected a large amount of eggs that were released during this spawning season. They then cared for them and helped them grow in a laboratory setting. And to do this then, you have this large amount hundreds of thousands of coral larvae that you can then redeploy through the use of a special drone, a sea drone called Larval Bot, which then can identify specific sections of the reef that need repopulation or would benefit from coral redistribution. And they can deploy the new coral to this location. If you think about it, it's an amazing idea, effectively like in vitro fertilization, IVF, for a reef. They're capturing millions of eggs and sperm during this spawning event, using specialist spawn catchers floating off a place called Moor Reef near Cairns, as Peter Harrison outlines. And they've lost so many of the corals, and there's fewer, that means there's fewer corals that are able to spawn. And that means your rate of fertilization, just natural regrowth, can't keep up with the rate of the reef being diminished. So between mass bleaching events where population die-offs occur, they need to take good ideas like this restoration process to boost and help the reef recover give it more of a chance of survival come the next bleaching event. Problem is this has only become more and more damaging because the time between coral bleaching events can get shorter and shorter. Or you might see consecutive bleaching events like we had in 2016 and 2017, which can make the 
coral even more at risk. Now, because you need to grow the coral, you can also experiment with ways to boost its likelihood of success, including feeding it different types of algae to see which ones give the new coral the best chance at life. And this is some great research that can be done on the sidelines as part of this project. And we're going to need to get better and better at this because as our reefs face more and more risk and damage, we need to make sure we can care for them. And that also means helping regrow them when the time comes. Some great research being done out of North Queensland collaboration of universities, including QUT, University of Technology Sydney, James Cook University, and Southern Cross University. next story of a drone being helpful takes us all the way to the forests of Wales. Now, ecologists from Cardiff University have recently conducted a pilot study in Bryn, a Natural Resources Wales managed conifer plantation. And what that means is they grow conifer trees there and they try to rebuild the forest for sustainable logging practices. But one of the big problems is that these forests that they're growing are the perfect home for the European nightjar, a small bird that, like its name suggests, is nocturnal in behaviour. And it's a protected species given its endangered status. The problem with European nightjars is, well, A, they're nocturnal, and B, they have a very difficult habit of making their nests in a very awkward location. Now the problem is, European nightjars like to nest in fallen logs or dead logs laying on the ground, and then they camouflage their nest to look just like part of that fallen log. And then, when they are worried or scared or trying to protect their nest, their defence mechanism is to sit tight when approached. So they try and camouflage themselves even more, which makes them nearly impossible to spot during the day when they're inactive and locking down and hungering down in these fallen logs and debris. And if you're a forestry worker or manager and you want to identify where these protected birds are, it's incredibly onerous. Because trudging around in the daytime means that you may not see them or find them because their nests are camouflaged and you're in a large forest. And hunting around through a forest at night, trying to find which dead log contains a bird, is incredibly difficult and dangerous from an occupational health and safety perspective. Which is why researcher Mike Schuring, a PhD student from Cardiff University, has been investigating a way to use drones, drone imagery, flying around at night at various heights in various different areas to try and identify where these night jaws are nesting, track them back to the nest, and identify the most likely location of those nests for then the forestry managers in the daytime to go inspect and identify. So they could then cordon off and protect those sleeping nightjar birds from damage. So they took different types of photographs using thermal imaging, and then they could use the high contrast between the nightjar's body temperature, which is about 40 degrees, and the colder background area. And if you take the, the photos about 10 metres high during the colder times of the day, like dawn and dusk, you could really easily identify the location of these birds inside this large forest. 
And that means during breeding season, for example, you could survey the entire area and get a really good idea of the locations of all of the nests. And you can do that by just deploying a simple and small drone into the air, letting it scan and collecting all the data and analyzing back at home. Now this is a great example of using technology like drones to help with other problems, to help conserve and look after the environment. So some great work from Cardiff University that was recently published at the British Ecological Society's meeting and conference in December 2018. Another example of using drones to help biologists tackle an environmental problem is being undertaken all up and down the Pacific coast of the North Americas, from Southern California all the way up to Alaska, all being led by the Marine Global Earth Observatories, Marine Geo, which is headquartered at the Smithsonian Environmental Research Center. It's collaborating with groups like the Zoestra Experimental Network and other research universities up and down the Pacific coast of the United States including Cornell University and others. Now the idea here is to tackle a very big problem, and that is to do with seagrass. Now, you don't think about seagrass often, but every year the world loses about 7% of its seagrass population. One, one particular culprit is the damaging eelgrass wasting disease, which basically like any of the blights that you'd see on any type of plant, rots and deteriorates the plant itself. But why would we care about seagrass? It's not like a coral reef, which is beautiful and has intrinsic value from an aesthetic perspective or is home to a huge ecosystem. Well, marine seagrasses are an incredibly valuable ecosystem, not for tourism reasons, but as another case. They actually provide habitat for huge amounts of popular fish like salmon and herring. And they also protect shorelines from erosion. They also filter out all nutrient pollution. So just a single hectare of seagrass is conservatively estimated to be worth over $19,000 a year. When you think about it like a crop, it makes it immensely valuable. But it is under constant threats from pollution, from diseases, from murky waters. Now, eelgrass is a particularly common seagrass along the North America's west coast. And it has a nemesis, a microscopic slime mold called Labyrinthia zoestrera, which frequently infects the eelgrass. It could cause a wasting type disease. Now, this disease wiped out 90% of eelgrasses along the North American East Coast in Europe during the 1930s. And conservation efforts have brought it back from that point, but still from time to time, outbreaks occur. Now, for example, in California's Morro Bay, it lost 95% of its eelgrass between 2007 and 2015. So, as part of that, in 2014, California developed its eelgrass mitigation policy to try and protect its remaining eelgrass with a goal of no net loss in habitation. So the problem is, this wasting disease darkens the grass and you see these black and brown spots, which is an example of the bacteria actually destroying the cells, preventing photosynthesis, which would obviously eventually kill the grass. And the problem is it's extremely infectious. Even blades that aren't touching each other can get the disease transferred to, as Drew Harville, a Cornell biologist involved in the project, outlines. 
Now, the challenge is, the slime mold doesn't always trigger a deadly outbreak. Not all of the strains of the mold cause disease, and some eelgrass is actually better resistant to it than others. Why, scientists are unsure of. It could be related to animals that are living in the area or warmer waters. But effectively, it's one of those classic examples of a temperature-sensitive disease, Drew Harville points out. We've shown in the lab that disease gets faster and causes more damage at warmer temperatures. And there's also been studies in Europe to show temperature dependence. So how do you tackle it? Well, there's a three-year-long project that involves a variety of teams from different universities at 36 different sites, from San Diego to just south of Juneau in Alaska. In one site, for example, they'll run experiments to see how small animals that feed on the seagrass or algae could be involved in spreading the disease. It's possible that they may be transporting or microbes are hitching a ride from plant to plant. Now, artificial intelligence will be giving another team a boost, which is where Cornell computer scientist Carla Gomez, for example, comes in. She's developed an algorithm that trains computers to recognize the disease's telltale lesions and to distinguish them from nicks and cuts for other kind of damage that the team's not really interested in because they're trying to track. So what this involves drones are is they can take lots and lots of pictures and scan the ocean floor and then using this new algorithm we can sort through all those images very very quickly and identify which other grasses at risk or which ones are doing well and how we can better study and understand the differences between them and the important part about them is it also means you can get citizen scientists involved because they too can fly the drones or bring in their own pictures from drones underwater, feed them into this overall algorithm and help track this immense coastline worth of information. Now, as our oceans get warmer, we're going to need more and more projects like this to help tackle and make sure our marine environments and ecosystems don't slip through the tracks and can be tracked and helped along the way. Some great research being done out of the Smithsonian Environmental Research Centre. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, The Grange Point. From helping keep the oceans clean and track disease, to helping reseed the reef and protect endangered species in forests, drones can be a tool for good as well as for evil. We talked about the ways to tackle rogue drones. Our ending theme was composed by Audio Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.